Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor of Investors Chronicle, and Noel Casalis, Co-Manager of Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund. Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund, as its name implies, applies ethical as well as financial criteria when investing. This theoretically reduces the range of investments into which the fund's assets can be invested, so you might assume that it doesn't perform as well as corporate bond funds without an ethical remit. But, in terms of performance, the fund is in the top 25% of funds in the Investment Association sterling corporate bond sector over 1, 3, 5 and 10 years. Noel, how has Rathbone Ethical Bond managed to stay ahead of many peers which don't have an ethical remit? Well, it's very interesting that you ask that question. So when I started back in 2011, it was very much the myth that ethical funds always underperform and people had to sacrifice some of their return to invest according to their beliefs. Um, But actually, we feel like the screening process gives investors an extra layer of protection. We invest in bonds. So if you think about bonds, you really have asymmetric risk and return. So the most we would always get is our interest and our capital back at the end, and kind of almost like a mortgage, but we can lose 100% of our investment. Um, so having that screening in place really has helped protecting us from many bad investments and from that downside risk. If you think about car manufacturers and the emission scandal, we've avoided that because of the screening. If you think of BP and the Gulf of Mexico, that's the same. And again, the same with a lot of the governance issues that you know, have crept up over the years. Um, so we feel like the screening is ensuring us um, that companies that we're investing are properly managed and that their business model is future-proof. So I think, in fact, the screening has helped the performance. And another factor, perhaps, is our investment discipline. So we do really in-depth credit analysis, um, and we combine that with strong conviction calls. Okay. So uh, what are your ethical criteria? I mean, and what do they, you know, prevent you from investing in? So we apply both negative and positive screening. So we don't just stop at the exclusion. We go a a step further. Um, So first on the negative screening, so we exclude any company that would breach our criteria. Um, And then we do look at the positive. So in terms of exclusion, some of the examples would be Alcohol, animal testing, armaments. So we can't invest in guilds or a lot of government bonds because of, you know, the financing of the army. Or another example could be environmentally unsustainable activities. Um, So that would be excluded. And then we apply positive factors. Um, So we would look at things like employment policies, human rights and management of environmental impacts. Um, so this is not an exhaustive list, but I hope it does give a flavor. We try to be as transparent as possible, so all our criteria are published. We are a fund, so we cannot tailor our investments to you know mm. every single investor's beliefs, but we really want to be as transparent as possible to make sure every single investor that invests in the fund is okay with, with the criteria. I mean, that's obviously quite a list. I mean, and um, you mentioned some examples where it's been beneficial to avoid certain areas. But have there been times when, you know, perhaps there was something that could have helped the fund and you weren't able to invest in it and, you know, it was detrimental? Yeah, I think in the short term, um, perhaps one of the classic examples is when you have a big rally in oil 
we can't invest in oils. We might miss from that. But I think, you know, this kind of washes out over the, the long term. Okay. I suppose on the flip side, um, has the ethical remit ever led you to any investments that perhaps you wouldn't have thought of if you didn't have an ethical remit, but actually worked out really well? Um, yeah, of course. So I think the best example here is the charity bond market. Because of our ethical remit, we've been approached by a number of charities themselves or social finance intermediaries working with charities. Um, and I think really we would never have came across these opportunities if we didn't have ethical, you know, in our name. Um, so if you look at charities, they tend to be really prudent organization and they have really strong cash flows, so quite a low risk profile. And so really, why would you discount them from, from an investment standpoint? Uh, we've been investing in this market and championing it. I think we're pr- probably the only institutional investor to be in that space. Um, and I, I think that's really been great for the fund. Um, and also, with, you know, currently interest rates are really low. So for charities, it's quite an interesting tool for them to to finance themselves. So we've seen that market grown over the years. Um, and, you know, not only did the investments have performed well, but they've also been fantastic from an impact perspective. So one of the examples is Scope. Scope was one of the first charity to come to the market, the disability charity, and they raised money to open more shops. By opening more shops, they increase their revenues and they increase the reach in terms of their beneficiaries. And that's been a really successful bond issue. They repay their bond in full, didn't need extra financing. So that sent a really strong signal to the markets. And so it's been growing since then. And we find really interesting opportunities there. Okay. Now, over 70% of Rathbone ethical bond funds assets uh, when bonds issued by insurance companies and banks um, at the end of September, um, institutions that perhaps you might not think of as ethical. I mean, why do you include them and how do they pass your ethical screen? So our biggest exposure is to the insurance sector. You know, we feel they are huge contributors to countries' resilience. So I worked in Cambodia for six months and there I was doing actually a due diligence on the insurance sector. Um, insurance there has a really low penetration rate and you end up with actually a really fragile population. So most families, they have to sell their possessions if a family member falls ill, for example, and their possession usually would include cattle or land. So suddenly the family has no income, falls into property. So I think, you know, insurers and in that case, health insurers, for example, play a really big role in, in society and its resilience. Um, another example, I grew up in south of France, which is sunny most of the time, but we had really big floods. And the day I started high school, we had floods really severe. So I couldn't go for one week, which obviously I was quite pleased about. <laughs> um, but it meant that a lot of cars were in the rivers, a lot of businesses were destroyed, a lot of roads were destroyed. Again, if you don't have insurance, what would have happened to all these families and businesses? And um, so we feel insurers actually um, have quite a big role in, in today's societies. And for bank, what we do is we look at best-in-class practices. We don't exclude financial institutions on, on the basis of their lending policies. What we do is we focus more on how the company operates in terms of managing their direct social and environmental risk. Um, and we would look, for example, at employment issues, environmental impacts and human right concerns, this kind of things. Obviously, uh, you know, you, you 
um, investing in, in a, a specific type of way. So are there any types of markets or conditions in which Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund typically outperforms and typically underperforms? Sure. Um, so in terms of underperformance, we would describe ourselves as a medium risk fund and we are a credit fund as opposed to a government bond fund. So slightly riskier than if you just invest in, in government bonds. And so I would say in terms of underperformance, it could come from a, an environment where it's called risk off, where companies earning are under pressure, where investors favor lower risk assets like these government bonds. I think that would be the, the main environment that is detrimental for us. And also, if you think about the ethical screening, some of the most defensive sectors are excluded from our funds. Things like tobacco and things like armament and defense um, and also pharmaceuticals. So we would tend to be perhaps slightly more cyclical. So I'd say that's, that's the main uh, markets where we could in the short term underperform and in terms of outperformance it would be the other way around so an environment where the economy is doing okay companies are doing well um, credit fundamentals are kind of stable or improving we tend to perform well in these scenarios increasing number of funds say that they consider ethical issues and the investment approach, although traditionally they haven't done this. You know, if that's the case, um, and it's not just a, a, I suppose, a marketing thing, do you think that, you know, you still differentiated from, you know, regular funds if, you know, everybody's doing a bit of the ethical? Yeah, I think, I mean, the first thing that differentiates us, I think, is our experience in that field. Our fund was set up actually in 2002, so way before ethical investing was fashionable. In fact, it was quite a bold move, I think, in 2002. So I joined in 2011, and even then the market was quite embryonic. Uh, we would go to investors and they would say, we love your fund. They say it's ethical, and our clients don't really want ethical. They mm. just want something that performs. So even in 2011, it was quite hard you know, to have ethical in your name. Uh, and the market has completely changed. I think another differentiator perhaps is the fact that all our research, ethical research is done in-house um, and is proprietary to us um, and it's done by Raspberry's Green Bank Investments and they've actually been at the forefront of development in the ethical investment industry and they've been doing ethical research since 1992 and they launched the first bespoke ethical portfolio services. So um, yeah, I think not many firms would have that kind of track record. So there would be the, the two main things I would say. Perhaps I would just add that another way, if someone is looking at different funds in that space, um, a way of differentiating funds is looking at the criteria themselves because different funds would have very different criteria, which tends to be quite confusing. And we would rank funds from what we say dark green to light green, depending on how strict the criteria are. And our fund tends to be seen as, as dark green, um, so quite strict criteria with perhaps more exclusion than some peers. Okay. Now, aside from um, the ethical criteria, um, you know, what's your investment process? How do you go about selecting bonds to hold in the fund? So at Rasbones in our team, we are theme-based investors. Um, so we would look at big themes. They can come from just observing the, the world around us, for example, looking at the Amazon effect and and the consequences for retailers. It could be looking at macro or, or sector sector specific changes or new regulation. Um, so once we have a theme, we apply um, our credit due diligence screen, which is what we call the forces models. We look at characters, so trying to understand what management is trying to do, 
capacity? Can they actually repay their bonds and collateral and, and covenants? Um, and what we're really looking for here is strong and stable cash flows, the ability to repay their, their debts. Um, once we've identified strong companies that we like and we feel they're, they're improving, we look at valuation. Uh, we run a, a proprietary model there. So the point really to look at valuation is what's the value um, to our unit holder if we buy something that is really expensive. Um, so we really look for um, companies that have improving fundamentals but that are not yet reflected in the price. Um, and I think, again, looking at key differentiator is probably our conviction-led process um, and the fact that we are non-benchmarked. Uh, we, we, are, we will say benchmark agnostic, so we know it's in a benchmark, but it's not because it's in the benchmark that we, we should buy it. Um, it sounds really simple, but if we don't like a sector, we just don't buy it. Um, and if we like a sector, then we're happy to take higher conviction position. So it's a truly actively managed portfolio. Also, in terms of the investment discipline, uh, philosophically, we put the ethical screening at the end. And that's because we really want every investment in the portfolio to be in there because it's a good investment, not because it's nice and green and it's doing some social good. And I think also that discipline has helped the performance over the long term. Okay. Now, increasing numbers of bonds have negative or low yields. So, where are you finding opportunities? Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, we invest mainly in the sterling bond market. So we are lucky here. We have base rate at 0.75 basis uh, percent. Um, so a lot higher than in Europe. So I think it's perhaps a lot more of a challenge for European bond fund managers. But even here, yields have compressed a lot. Um, they remain positive, but, you know, they, they are um, pretty low. Uh, so where we find opportunities tends to be in financials because the fundamentals here uh, we find very strong. Um, and as you can see from our funds, we have quite high allocations to, to banks and insurance. Uh, what do we like there? We like um, the regulatory changes after the crisis. Banks have been a lot more regulated and same with insurance as well. And so for us as bondholder, it provides more protection and we find a lot of opportunities there. Um, and specifically looking at insurers, actually, they've been doing really well. So if you think about insurers, they are risk managers. So you should think they're pretty good at managing their risk, right? And in fact, that's what they've been doing. So in the crisis, they haven't had to raise any capital. And also uh, over the last few years, we've seen high natural catastrophes. They Again, they didn't have to raise any capital. Um, so that means for us, uh, we haven't had any fundamental issue with this sector. Um, so actually, they are pretty resilient, and yet they're one of the cheapest sector in our universe, um, which is the investment-grade um, universe. So not only the fundamentals are strong, but the valuations are attractive as well. Okay. Now, the fund has some exposure to unrated bonds and um, sub-investment-grade bonds, um, bonds that are rated below triple B. Have you gone down there because of a difficulty in finding attractive yields or, or you know, what's your reason? Um, and doesn't holding these make the fund much riskier? Okay, so let me take first the unrated bonds. Um, so at the end of October, our allocation to that space was 3.6%. Um, and the exporter is actually really well diversified. We have o over 30 holdings in that 3.6%. Um, so I don't think it's a game changer in terms of, of the fund's risk profile. Um, and if you look at what's in this group, it tends to be 
charity bonds and community projects. Um, so actually, as I was saying earlier, charities tend to be prudently managed. Um, so not necessarily um, higher risk in, in that space. Um, one of the examples could be Golden Lane. So we've been investing in their bonds since 2013. They are part of Mencap and they've been issuing and repaying several bonds. So, um, you know, from a credit standpoint or an investment perspective, uh, we're very comfortable with um, that risk profile. And on the, the high yield or sub-investment grade space, our exposure there is around 6%, 6.5%. Um, so what tends to be in that in the, um, bucket is bonds issued by banks before the crisis. Um, so this is high conviction positions. Um, because of new regulations, we believe these bonds are going to be inefficient from for the banks. So effectively, they become useless. And quite expensive. So some bonds have has a coupon or interest of 13%. So if it's useless for them, why would they keep paying that 13% when, you know, in Europe you have negative yield and even in the UK you have really low yield. So we think there are um, attractive opportunities. I would say they might be perceived as, as riskier um, as they are lower down the capital structure. So yes, this is c- correct. They could be s- slightly riskier, but this is where... We actually differentiate ourselves for, from our peers. We do a lot of work in that space and that's really been helping the performance over the last few years. Okay. Now, um, thinking about uh, the bond maturities um, on your last fact sheet, the end of September, it said most of your assets were in bonds maturity are between five and 10 years. Is that a deliberate choice? And, um, you know, if it is a deliberate choice, you know, why, why, why have a maturity between five and 10 years? Sure. Yes, it is a deliberate choice. Uh, this is what we call the belly of the curve. So this is going to get quite technical. Mm-hmm. So I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. But if you look at, at the bond curve, it tends to be upward sloping. So if you lend money for longer, you should get more mm-hmm. yield um, because you take more risk. Um, and actually, the curve is quite steep between five and 10 years. Uh, and after that, it's quite flat. So if you look for, I don't know, a bond that has a 20-year maturity, the incremental yield is not that much higher. Um, so that's why we like that that part of the curve. There is also something that we call the roll-down, which is if you invest for 10 years, then the bond become in one year time a nine-year bond. And because the curve is quite steep, you get every single year a little price appreciation just for doing nothing, just for holding the bond in your portfolio. So we like when bonds start lose, you know, going closer to their maturity date, reinvesting them and higher up in the curve and keeping the yield as high as possible. Okay. Now, many analysts are also interested in what is known as a bond fund's average duration. So um, getting technical again, um, what is duration? Um, what is Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund's current uh, average duration and um, why we got it at this level? Duration is effectively the sensitivity of a fund to changes in interest rate. So the longer the duration, the higher that sensitivity. Um, I mean, if you look at bond funds, duration could be pretty much anywhere from one to two years to 15 years. So it varies greatly from a fund to another. And I think it's really important for an investor to understand that sensitivity because it's going to be a big driver um, of return. So if you think interest rates are going to go down significantly, you should buy long duration funds because they will be benefiting the most from the lower rates. But 
Equally, if you're worried that interest rate will reverse and go back up, then investors should limit the duration in the funds that you invest. In terms of the ethical bond fund, our duration is 6.2 years. Um, and we think this is slightly less than the sector that we estimate is around seven years. So we have slightly less interest rate sensitivity than the sector. So if yields go back up, we should outperform. So what have we been doing over the last year? We've been actually increasing the duration um, slightly because economic data has been deteriorating. So we felt that yields were going to come down. Um, and obviously, it's fair to say that guilds yields have been quite volatile of late with not only economic data, but the elections as well. So our positioning remain quite tactical and it's something that we can adjust quite quickly on the fund. Talking of, um, I suppose, issues um, uh, and things, what are the main risks uh, to the kinds of bonds that you invest in at the moment? Um, I would say the main risk is probably sentiment and, and risk of events. So we're investing credit, so... You always have to look at the, the prospect for the economy, companies, how they're doing, things like that. So that would be the, the key concern um, for us. And if you think of a bond in general, the main risk is default, really. The company can't repay their loan or they can't finance, service their interest. Um, so that's something we always keep a really close eye on. Rathbone Ethical Bond is a corporate bond fund, so can't invest as widely as a strategic bond fund, um, which can invest across the entire fixed income spectrum. I mean, in the current uncertain environment, is it not a risk to be in a bond fund that, let's say, can't invest as widely as a strategic bond fund? I would say that, yes, it's true. Our investment universe is more restricted than Strat Bond Fund Managers. However, um, I would add that it doesn't necessarily mean that our fund is riskier. Um, so if you look at strategic bond funds, they can invest in anything. That could be gilts or US Treasury, so low-risk securities, but it could also be emerging market and high yields. So investors really there should be looking at the asset allocation and understand the investments that are in the funds um, and therefore the risks that come with it. We actually also manage a strategic bond fund, which is Rathbone's strategic bond fund. Um, and it tends to be seen as a defensive fund in the space. So actually, we have seen quite a lot of interest because of uncertain time. Um, and the fund has quite low volatility versus the sector, um, strong risk-adjusted return, meaning for every single um, unit of risk, you get extra return, um, and low correlation to equities. Um so yeah, definitely I think some of the lower risk lower risk strategy have seen interest of late. But I would also add that on ethical bond fund, we also have to tool to de-risk. De so we could alter the credit quality of our bonds. So for example, reduce the riskier ones, so triple Bs, um, in favor of um, single A or triple A. So we have tool within the portfolio to de-risk um, as well. Okay, thank you, Noel. A really interesting insight into Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund and a helpful update on the bond market. Now, the biggest equity gains of the past decades have largely eluded value-style investors who try to invest in stocks that appear to be trading for less than their intrinsic book value. But markets have recently been showing signs of turning back into their favour. Dave, you've been looking at this. Um, what signs suggest that um, value-style investing uh, is making a comeback? 
Hi, Leonora. So, yeah, we have had a few glimmers of hope for these very beleaguered uh, value investors. Um, obviously, it's struggled for many years. In, I guess, September and October, you've seen a few signs of um, value stocks in particular doing better. For example, in the US, you had a small rotation in September. Uh, in the UK, that's become, you know, very beaten up, unloved market and has some of the kind of classic value sectors. Um, you've seen stocks such as banks um, having moments of very, very strong performance. And now, interestingly, you're seeing more of a, I mean, I think it's fair to say professional investors have been turning to value a bit more this year in general. But um, recently, you've had a much bigger shift. And that's partly because the gap in performance and price between kind of value and um, quality growth stocks has become so wide. Um, and they see a kind of price opportunity. But also looking to the future, people have higher inflation expectations. Um, there are fewer fears of things like a recession. Um, and, um, you know, if you look at the political situation, obviously it's very volatile, but you're now seeing more talk again about um, fiscal stimulus, which could kind of boost growth, could bring in more kind of inflation. Perhaps you could then see uh, more of a rising interest rate environment, which would benefit um, value stocks like banks. If you decide that uh, you also want to tilt your portfolio to value, I mean, how easy is it to do it? Are there, you know, plenty of funds that, you know, invest via value style that you could add? Yes and no. So some funds that have more of a kind of generalist approach have been, as I said, kind of moving into value a bit. But if you if you want a really sort of dedicated value fund who has kind of a lot of experience in that area and has been doing that for a long time, that's become something of a rarer beast, really, because as I alluded to, value investing has lagged growth and has struggled for, you know, the last decade, basically. So it's been harder to do. Many people have simply given up on being value investors. Another risk that's quite interesting is this idea of uh, star drift. So you might be a dedicated value investor, your performance is lagging, and you just start to kind of tiptoe into some of the stocks that have been doing better, some of those growth stocks, in order to kind of limit that underperformance. Hmm. I mean, that's, um, well, I suppose it's, uh, yeah, maybe not necessarily doing what you say in the can mm, sort mm, of yeah. thing. You, I mean, why is it important to, you know, keep tabs on this, to, to monitor the style drift, I suppose? It's just, I mean, it comes down to that kind of whole importance of kind of knowing what you're investing in. Um, I mean, regardless of your views on how markets are going to go in coming months and years, or whether value's looking well-placed, whether growth is looking well-placed, um, it's good to have some understanding of kind of where they're positioned and how a fund could perform in different conditions. This could, for example, as I said, some growth managers might have moved a bit more into value. Some value managers might have kind of slipped into growth. So, yeah, it's just about kind of not being surprised by how they perform when, uh, if and when markets kind of change. Okay. And I mean, what, you know, what can you do? What, what, do, you, what do you have to, you know, kind of monitor to effectively monitor start yeah. drift? Um, it's, it's a hard one to, to catch, really. I mean, for example, you can look at standard disclosures, you can look at fact sheets and perhaps get a glimpse um, of what's going on. But you, I think you have to do this kind of relatively frequently. So, for example, you could keep looking at a fund's um, top 10 holdings, 
you could look at their kind of bigger sector allocations. And it, it's kind of, I mean, it's a blunt tool, but you could um, see whether the manager appears to be shifting more into, um, I don't know, for example, growth sectors like technology or more into kind of classic value sectors like energy, like banking. Um, as I say, it is, it is a rough measure, um, but it might give you some idea. And then perhaps more usefully, you have, um, for example, Morningstar, their website, They, um, if you look at the kind of landing page for a fund, they will provide a star box where they look to identify, for example, with an equity fund, whether it's kind of value, whether it's growth, whether it's more generalist, and also things like um, what kind of size um, they invest in, in terms of the companies. So that that's kind of a useful rough guide. And I suppose, um, you know, coming from the other side, how do you spot a genuine value manager? It's difficult. So those things I mentioned are, are useful. I guess what's also interesting is performance. And perhaps something which might put you off here could now be kind of a, a positive because I guess a true... You know, there are different degrees how value you can go, but a kind of true value manager will have um, struggled at least versus the kind of growth year ended markets in recent years. So they've, they're probably names that you may have kind of overlooked because they've just not held up very well in terms of performance. Um, but equally, you could look at these names um, in terms of how they performed at points when the value ended the market has done better. So for example, um, the second half of 2016, value performed notably well. Um, you would expect kind of dedicated value managers to have kind of captured that outperformance. Okay. Um, and what would be examples of genuine value funds? Yeah, you do still have some some dedicated managers out there. So, um, for example, you have uh, Investex uh, UK Special Situations Fund. Um, that's run by Alistair Mundy, very uh, world-renowned value manager he often talks about his uh, his job being looking through people's bins um, <laughs> in terms of finding very beaten up kind of uh, dislike stocks but yeah he he looks for um, companies that he thinks are undervalued um, when generally the market is quite kind of negative and sold off and he is kind of stuck with that style for a very long time if you want to look on the income side of things um, because you know value can be useful for income because as prices drop, um, yields will rise, um, as long as you're not buying into something that keeps falling forever. One example, another kind of very respected team is um, Schroeder Income. So that is Kevin Murphy and Nick Kirridge. They are very dedicated value managers, focus on um, kind of fundamental elements of uh, kind of companies, things like cash flows, dividends. And they just look for kind of strong metrics where they think that if you look at the share price, these are basically being kind of undervalued by the markets. Okay, thank you, Dave. And uh, see this week's big theme in the fund section of the magazine or the website for more examples of funds that invest via a value style. That brings us to the end of today's show, but have a look at this week's Investors Chronicle or the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk for more on value investing bond funds and ethical investing. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.